Well, it is great to be back at uh, Campus Bible Study or the Bible Talks, where I spent uh, most of my life, actually, for 30 years. I was here doing this week by week uh, and uh, had a great time in the process of doing it. And especially glad to be here to bring an Easter message to you. Uh, the three talks this week are on the madness in terms of the death of Jesus today, the resurrection of Jesus tomorrow, and then on Thursday I come back on our changed lives. Uh, you can see on the outline this uh, tear off part, and can I encourage you to be filling it out uh, on the way through the talk now, because at the end we're going to leave this lecture theatre in about two seconds flat. And then it's a little late to try and write down what you want to write down. So if you start writing down now, that's a helpful thing, so that when the great rip-off time comes, we can do the rip-off together and get out of here. You'll notice down the bottom of it, there are three, three um, circles to tick one of them. I'm new, visiting. Secondly, I'd like to uh, do a course to find out more about Jesus. And thirdly, I prayed the prayer. The prayer is the prayer just across from there, Dear God, it starts, as most prayers do kind of start, which is when we're heading in this talk. That is, by the end of the talk, I hope that I will so present Christ and his death to you that either one, you will want to know and hear more, recognise that you don't know enough to make any sensible decision at the moment and that you need to more and therefore will tick that second uh, circle, or, secondly, that some of you will say, well, I know I need Christ, and I know it's true. And so we'll join with me in praying that prayer at the end, and therefore we'll tick that box about praying the prayer, and someone from Campus Bible Studies will get in touch with you either way. Okay, let's get started. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. That was the judgment of Porcius Festus. Around 59 AD, he was appointed to the same job that Pontius Pilate had, that is, he was the Roman procurator of Judea. On his arrival at Caesarea, the capital there, he found a prisoner who had been languishing in jail for several years, awaiting a fair trial and not able to get one. His name was the Apostle Paul. Festus couldn't understand the Jewish charges that were against Paul. And so when a neighbouring king, a half-caste Jew, Herod Agrippa II, came to visit and to welcome the new procurator, he brought Paul out before him and his friend, his royal visitor, to ask and get some explanation as to what the charges were. What had this man done wrong that the Jews so wanted him dead? When Festus heard what Paul had to say, especially as Paul explained to him about Jesus rising from the dead and about all the nations of the world being enlightened by this Jew who had died and risen from the dead. He proclaimed with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. It was the judgment of others, other opponents of Paul as well. See, writing to the Christians in Corinth, Paul had to defend himself against their accusations. One of the accusations clearly was his madness, for he writes there in verse 13, verse is the little number means verse, he writes there, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Clearly, Paul thought 
But clearly, some people thought this man, this missionary, this apostle, was out of his mind, was mad, was beside himself. And frankly, on the standards of this world, well, on the standards of middle-class Australia and the aspirational classes of Australia, you'd have to say that Paul was decidedly mad. I mean, the judgment of normality would condemn him as an extremist who lost his senses. Later in this same letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, he described his life as a missionary apostle in these words. He says of other people, are they servants of Christ? I'm better, I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Uh, that's not a drug term, that's a physical uh, <laughs> stone. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift on the sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I think he was giving the impression that he was in danger. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Bear grills eat your heart out. (laughs) The Apostle Paul went before you. Given all these trials and tribulations, you wouldn't actually say, I want my children to grow up to be one of them. It's not a career move that most people would want to become a missionary like this. You'd have to say that this lifestyle was fairly mad. So how does he justify himself in his actions? Well, there are two justifications that he gives in that little passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 13, 14 today that I've mentioned to you. The first is that if he is mad, he's mad for God. The second is, if he is in his right mind, he's in his right mind for you. Being mad for God is not something that he's actually commending. It's not actually what he believes. But he's doing what God told him. And if this means that the world is going to view him as mad, well, so be it. Far better to be thought mad by a mad world and do the will of God than thought sane by a mad world and disobey God. But clearly, he thought he was in his right mind. And if he was in his right mind... It was for you, he told the Corinthians Christians. For all his sufferings, his beatings, his lifestyle of danger, his hard work and his sacrifice was done for them. It was all an expression of his unselfish love for them. He was laying down his life for them. But how can laying down your life for others be seen as being in your right mind? Isn't looking after yourself the rational approach to life. The atheist, Ayn Rand, she speaks of ethical egoism. For that, in the end, is as rational a view of atheism as any other view of atheism. If there is nothing in this world other than this world, if there's nothing in your existence other than your physical experiences, if there's nothing other than the twitching of your grey matter, then you may as well twitch it in a pleasant fashion. Why live for other people? Why do anything for anybody else? Why not just seek to make yourself and your grey matter as happy as you can? That is as rational an option for atheism as any other option. And living for others is a profoundly irrational 
option. And so our world says, our middle class families say, charity, oh yes, charity begins at home, doesn't it? Usually that means it begins at home and it ends at home in your own wallet. What could turn this educated first class, uh, first century Jewish scholar into the self-sacrificing adventurous apostle of suffering? Why would he lay down his life for others? His answer is because he was controlled by love. You see his answer in the next part of today's text. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of God, the love of Christ, controls us. There is a sense in which his actions were controlled. He felt compelled, constrained. It was not something over which he had a real freedom. It was not something that he could take it or leave it. This was... This had a moral imperative about it that gave him no choice. There was something that was hedging him in, controlling him, constraining him, keeping him to go forward in a particular pattern until he'd completed it. He was forced to do this. And what is it that controlled him like this? He said it was the love of Christ. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. There was something about the love of Christ which compelled him. He could do no other. He had to act because of his love of Christ. But it wasn't his love for Christ. It was Christ's love for him. So overwhelmed by being loved by Christ that he could do no other than what he was doing. Now, do you know that love of Christ? Has it compelled you to actions that the world would think are mad? But you know are right? Love is a very driving, compelling force if you've ever experienced it. The love of Christ compelled and drove him in all of his life. In fact, the question is, do you know the love of Christ at all? What is this love of Christ that can get people to do such extraordinary things? But, you see, Paul was not alone being controlled and constrained by the love of Christ. He was just one of thousands and millions of people whose lives have been marked out by their extraordinary exploits that the world at the time always called mad but in fact came from the love of Christ. Lord Shaftesbury and his campaign for the poor and the, and the children in the Industrial Revolution, Wilberforce and his campaign for the slaves, Dr Livingstone and his exploits in Africa, Gladys Aylward and her exploits in China, or Richard Johnson, man of enormous historical importance in Australia, who doesn't occur in most of the Australian history books, for he gave up the comforts of a Georgian English parson, which were very great, to become the chaplain of the first fleet, a prison fleet, a prison. He became a prison chaplain at the end of the world in Botany Bay. See, the soldiers, they had to come. The sailors, they had to come. The convicts, they had to come. Even the governor had to come. But Richard Johnson chose to come 
He chose to go and live in a prison at the end of the world. Madness. Absolute madness. And yet, he did it for the sake of the convicts. Well, that's madness, isn't it? The government was offloading the car. They didn't want them. Send them to a, send them to the Antipodes. That's what they thought of the convicts. Get rid of them. Get them out of Britain. We don't want these people. But this man gave his life to serve these people that the world did not want. And it's not just in the past. Having been here for 30 years, I could tell you for the next hour and day, in fact, of the stories of men and women who have left the comfortable prosperity of the professional career in Australia that the university trained you for because they discovered the compelling love of Christ Jesus. Uh, the couple with law degrees. Now, there's a recipe for writing a, comfortable, uh, writing a comfortable career and writing your own money, isn't it? Who left it all to preach to students overseas, raising their family in a small flat, living without so much as a motor car. Or the couple of doctors who, again, in, in our world's sanity, is the ideal the way to get ahead, isn't it? I mean, be a doctor and marry a doctor. How much more safe, secure and money financial can you be than that? who gave up medicine and Australia and the comforts of Australia to proclaim Christ in Japan, a country that didn't need doctors, so they didn't practice medicine, haven't practiced medicine since, but they a country that so desperately needs to hear about Jesus. The madness of Paul is a madness that's all down through the history and is a madness that is alive and well today. But is it mad? Each they say, no, it's the love of Christ that controls me. There's hardly any motivating force in this world that's greater than love. To be loved by Christ. So what is this love of Christ that so motivates people? Paul explains it in terms of he concluded. I read again, verse 13. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If it's in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded. The love of Christ is not anti-intellectual. It's not even necessarily a feeling. It's not insanity or irrational. It's not even irrational. It's something that we can think. It's something that we can know. It's something that Paul says you can conclude. I've concluded this. And it's something that he has thought through and come to a conclusion. And it's the same conclusion that many, many people have come to. It's the conclusion of being persuaded by the evidence. It's a judgment that he's made from the evidence. It's a conviction of his mind that has controlled his life. It's the conviction that is spelled out for us in the next phrase that one has died for all and therefore all have died. You see it there in the text. It's in verse 14. Now, let's take those ideas at a time so that we can understand this love of Christ that motivates people so that we can come to the same conviction or be unconvinced. <coughs> He concludes that one has died. Now, here's a brute fact. The brute fact is very hard to deny that Jesus died. 
Only the Muslims reject this as a fact. The Quran explicitly denies that Jesus died in Surah 4.157. It says that Jesus was not crucified and that he did not die. Both can't be right. They both could be wrong. Maybe Jesus never lived. A, a proposition that hardly anybody believes. But if he lived, did he die? If Islam is true, Christianity is false. If Christianity is true, Islam is false. And so those people who think all religions are true, they are always false. <laughs> because these two both can't be true, seeing they are in flat contradiction of each other about a brute fact of history. Jesus died. Or he didn't die. What about you? Are you convinced that Jesus died? I believe the evidence seems overwhelming. All the early Christian and non-Christian sources say that he died, and they all say it by the same method, by crucifixion. Josephus, the Jewish historian, Tacitus, the Roman historian, tell us that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And the New Testament, it's just page after page after page about Jesus' death. To cut every reference to Jesus' death out of the New, of the New Testament leaves you with a book of confetti. But what about you? Are you persuaded that he died? Do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe it? That's why we have down here in the tear-off slip that second thing, you see. I'd like to, to, I'd like to do a course to find out more about Jesus. Because there are people who just don't know. That's all right. There's a whole range of things that we don't know about, aren't there? Most of the courses you're studying, I don't know about. I mean, that's life. But this one is really an important one, as you'll see, for this is the centre of Christian culture, which is the largest culture in the universe, and this has affected more of humanity than anything else, and this has transformed people's lives even to this day, and one day you're going to face death. That is more certain than you're going to pay taxes. And so death matters, and this man deals with life and death. So, do you believe... Jesus died. Then the second part of Paul's conclusion, he says that he died for all. Now, this is a different altogether. This is not the brute fact of death, but the reason and the interpretation of his death. Why did Jesus die? It wasn't because he had cancer or he was an old man. It wasn't that he was caught in some political machinations of the first century Roman Palestine. It wasn't that he had a car, a donkey accident. He died, we're told, because he died for us. He laid down his life voluntarily for us. It wasn't taken from him, but given by him. You see, he could have fled. He could have stayed away from Jerusalem. He could have retired into the desert. He could have given up preaching. He could have raised an army of 10,000 and conquered the city of Jerusalem like Muhammad raised an army of 10,000 to conquer the city of Mecca. But he didn't do those things. He intentionally went to Jerusalem to be killed. Knowing, predicting and prophesying 
that he would be killed. And he did it, we're told, for us. And he prophesied he would do it for us. Now, how did he die for us? Well, he died as our representative and as our substitute. Uh, representative, we understand. People play representative sport, by which they mean they play on behalf of others. You can play representative sport representing the University of New South Wales. You can play representing New South Wales, the state. You can play representing Australia. I wouldn't mind a few better cricketers representing Australia at the moment. It would be very nice, actually. So well, anything of a win would be helpful. But you see, we get behind our team until they start losing, then we step back from them because they are misrepresenting us because we are the ones who are the winners and at the moment we are not. If you don't follow cricket, I'm sorry for you, although at the moment I'm very glad that you don't follow Australian cricket. Uh, I wish I didn't either. They represent us. They play on our behalf. But Jesus did more than that. The New Testament is clear that he not only represents us, but he died as our substitute. Now, a substitute in sport is different to a representative. A substitute is someone that the coach sends on halfway through because he sees that the person who's playing is not actually doing too well, that they're not going to win the game with that person playing, and so they take that one off the field and put a substitute in their place. And that's what Jesus did. He comes on and dies as our representative and as our substitute. For death is the wages of our rebellion against God. That's why quantitatively death is so normal. Everybody dies. But it's also why qualitatively death is so abnormal. If you don't know the abnormality of death, it's because you haven't had a close friend or relative die. But you stand beside the grave of your friend or your parent or your brother or your sister and the feelings of grief and sorrow will scream in anguish within you if they don't scream out through your mouth. For it is such an awful thing. Awful thing. I have a friend who's just gone into palliative care, a, a graduate from here, from our university, not yet 15 or 40s, with children. Just a week or two ago, we, we buried another person who was here with us, only in her 30s, three little children. Death is awful. A friend who was buried yesterday, last Friday, uh, 75, a lecturer here at the university, and uh, who died. My friend's it doesn't matter whether they're 35 or they're 75, it's awful. It's never happy. It's never a joke. Oh, we Christians believe in eternal life, but we also believe in the reality of death. And those who don't have a hope of eternal life, there is only the reality of death. And the reality of death is appalling. It is awful. Jesus was different to the rest of us. He didn't rebel against his father. He always came to do his father's will. He wasn't going to do his own will. He didn't live my life my way. He didn't set up autonomy as the essence of his existence. He didn't define himself 
as, as he was going to live his way. No, no. Jesus always came to do his Father's will. And so he never deserved to die as we do. For we've all rebelled against God, ignoring him, turning our back on him, doing just what we wanted to do, sometimes very consciously. I know I'm, he doesn't want me to tell lies, but hey, he's never faced the lecturer without having done the assignment before. He didn't have lecturers who gave him that hard time. I know how to handle lecturers. I will tell him the, the lie. There's the fifth grandmother that's died this month, but that's all right. The other four died with other lecturers. And so I will tell my lie again that will get me out of, we know how to live, we choose, sometimes very consciously against what we know is right. Sometimes it's very unconscious, isn't it? We're so full of pride, so full of ourselves that we don't even know what we're like. Everyone else knows we're self-centred pig. That's why no one wants to live with us. But we are so self-centred, we don't even notice it. That's the trouble with self-centred people. No. We've all rebelled, one way or another. For most people in Australia, it's ignoring God more than anything else. There's nothing wrong with being ignorant. You can always learn more. There's something fundamentally wrong with ignoring, isn't there? See, most of you I don't know. If I walk past you in the street, I'd be ignoring you because I don't know you. I'm just ignorant of you. But there are some of you who I do know. And if I saw you in the street and I ducked over the other side, walked down the other way, looked straight past, you would be offended and quite rightly offended. Because my ignoring you was rejecting you, wasn't it? We ignore God. We're not ignorant of him. We know he's there. But we ignore him. And you don't like being ignored. So why do you think God does? But Jesus, he didn't deserve to die because he never ignored his father. He never rebelled against his father. So why did Jesus die? If death is the penalty for rebellion and Jesus didn't rebel, then Jesus shouldn't have died. No, he shouldn't have. But he chose to die for you and for me in our place, as our substitute, as our representative, he took our punishment upon himself. That's what it was all about on the cross. That's when he called out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He was calling out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? It's a quote from the Old Testament. He's not asking a question. He's quoting Psalm 22. The man who suffers the penalty and punishment of God, that is what was happening to him on the cross. Has he suffered the punishment and penalty that we deserve? And so the third part of Paul's conclusion, the conclusion of the conclusion, so to speak, therefore all have died. I'm convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. If he died my death for me, then I've died already. My penalty is already paid for. My death has already happened. In his death, I died so that no longer do I no longer do I have to die as a penalty for rebellion against God. No longer do I die spiritually. This last conclusion pushes the logic all the way. If Jesus died for our sins, then we have died his death at Calvary 2,000 years ago. I'm no longer then guilty in the presence of God. I'm forgiven. 
I'm redeemed. I'm brought with, bought with a price, not my own, but the price he has paid for me. I'm pardoned. I'm ransomed. Why would he do such a thing for me? Well, not because I deserve it, but because he loved me. He wanted to spare me of death, the death I deserve. This is the love of Christ Jesus. The love of Christ for me. The love of Christ that Paul was convinced of and every Christian has ever since been convinced of. It's a love that when you are convinced of it will control you and constrain you to live a completely different way of life. This is why he would voluntarily give his life. Because God in the person of Jesus gave his life for me, his enemy, that I may have not death but eternal life. Not the death I deserve, but the eternal life he's won. Christians aren't good people. Christians are forgiven people who now live differently. Christians aren't motivated by the desire for heaven and the fear of hell because if you're a Christian, you already know that you're a citizen of heaven and you already know that hell has no threat for you because Christ has been there for you already. We're already the citizens of heaven, not because we're good, but because we're forgiven by the death of Jesus. One of the things you've got to do to be forgiven is do the wrong thing. If you've never done the wrong thing, you can't be forgiven, can you? Mind you, you needn't worry about it, friends. You've got things that need forgiveness. And because you've got things that need forgiveness, being a Christian is not being good, not being moral. It's not being... Not perfect, but better than the people I hang around with. Better than the person sitting next to me at the moment. Friends, that's not saying anything. The person sitting next to you is no better than you. God doesn't mark on the curve like that. I don't know anything, but I know more than the other people who failed. That's not God's method of marking. He requires us to live in relationship with him, obeying him, submitting to him, treating him as God in our lives. We either do or we don't. It's like marriage. You either are or you aren't. You can't be half married. You either are or you aren't. And with a Christian it's the same. You either are or aren't. And if you are, it's because you've been forgiven. If you aren't, it's because you're unforgiven. And therefore, his death is our sanity. You see, but now I know I'm forgiven. Now I know that I am forgiven by his death. Now my life and eternity are certain and I'm able to relate to God, not out of fear of punishment anymore, but out of love and forgiveness. Well, now the punishment has been paid. I am free. I am free to serve him and serve his world. I am free to lay down my life for the salvation of others. I am free to live no longer for myself, but for him who died for me and rose again. This is the sense of being loved that people long for. To be loved so much even when they know the worst about you and love you still the same. It declares that we matter. We matter to God that he sent his son to die for us. It declares that we're safe even against death. It gives us a sense of significance and security upon which we can build our lives positively. But it does mean that we will do things that the world now considers mad. 
We'll volunteer our time and effort for other people's benefits. We, will, we may give up our career for the sake of a mission field. We will stick at hard and unloving marriages. We will raise our children to honour and serve God, that they will live for Christ who loved us and gave his life. We will now live life differently. And it's not because we are mad. It's because with Paul, we are convinced that Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Well, what conclusions do you have about Jesus? Did he live? Did he die? Well, if he did, why? Why did the man who could draw thousands upon thousands of people to him walk into Jerusalem to be executed when he was innocent? Why? He said it was to pay the penalty for us. That's why he was crucified. But why do you think he was crucified? As an incompetent politician? What evidence have you got? As a failed revolutionary? What evidence have you got? As a naive believer in the goodness of human nature? Well, what evidence have you got of that? The Apostle Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers as well as millions of people around the world and down through the centuries of history, have discovered the answer that he died for us as our representative and substitute because he loved us and still does love us. And that love constrains and controls all our life and all our life's decisions. So what about you? Who do you think Jesus is? Why do you think he came? Why do you think he died? If you know that you need to find out more, well then that's why we have that little slip. Because we'd love to sit and talk with you about Jesus. Show you the evidences. Help you to make up your own mind because you need to be convinced. It's a conviction of mind from the basis of the evidences that are available. We'd love to share that with you. Mind you, if you know it's true, and you know you need forgiveness, then why not now accept the love of Christ to control your life? How do you do that? Well, it's the prayer. Turn with me to that prayer that's there. See what we pray. It's three paragraphs to the prayer. The first prayer, first part is an acknowledgement of the truth about yourself. I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you, ignoring you. I need forgiveness. That's just a truth statement about yourself. Most people can't face up the truth, but there's the truth. Second paragraph is thanking God for what he's done in Jesus. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me a new life. I'll talk about the resurrection tomorrow. Don't miss the talk on the resurrection. Thirdly, please forgive me. I need forgiveness. He died that I'd be forgiven. Please forgive me. And please change me that I may now live with Jesus as my ruler. Friends, that's how you accept the love of God in Christ Jesus. By praying that prayer, now I'm going to lead in prayer right now so that you see how simple it is to pray. You can join with me in praying along as well, if you like, in the quietness of your own mind. But take it with you. Sit down and think about it tonight. Ponder it over the next week. Work out if this is what you want in your life.
Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. And I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me, that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. My friend, if that is your prayer, God will forgive you, God will change you. That's why we're very keen to meet up with you. And so right down in the last little bit, well, do the rip-off now, we'll do it together. And I want everybody to fill it out, because the person next to you wants to fill it out, but they're embarrassed because you're looking at them. So you fill it out just for their sake. And if you've got nothing else to say, you can put it on the back. Well, it's lovely to see Philip Jensen. What a lovely person he is. And, and I'm going to wear a tie tomorrow so that I can look like Mike Doyle or whatever other <laughs> stupidity you want, just to make the person beside you feel comfortable. But, friends, if that is your prayer, then tick, it, tick the box now so we can talk to you about that terrific change of life. And if it's not your prayer because you don't know whether it's true, well then why not go for intellectual honesty and tick the second box, I'd like to do a course and find out more about Jesus. Because if this is true, this is the way out of death into eternal life. And if it's false, it's a monstrous lie that controls mankind.